You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Beautiful images of the brain's anatomy created by state-of-the-art magnetic resonance machines did not provide sufficient answers for researcher Dr. Keith Thulborn. For 10 years, he worked to design a machine that would offer a view of the formations of thought in the brain in real time. The result is an amazing new MRI that provides images of brain anatomy as well as brain metabolism. In this segment of the Clinician's Roundtable, we will discuss the creation and implementation of the most powerful MRI to date. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Chicago is my guest, Dr. Keith Fulborn, Director of the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Fulborn. Thank you. So let's talk about this machine. In the beginning, years ago, before it existed, how did you come up with the specifications for what this powerful MRI should be? Well, in the very early days, really before clinical magnetic resonance really existed, there were many attempts in various laboratories around the world to, to use what was at that time called nuclear magnetic resonance to look at in vivo biochemistry in various systems. At that time, the magnets were quite small, so most of those experiments were done in animals. And it was quite clear that as you increased the magnetic field strength, we were able to obtain very nice signals from intact biological systems that allowed us to say many things about the metabolism that underline tissue function. It was possible to do this in separated tissues with diffused hearts. It was also possible to do it in whole animals. Now, at that time, the magnet technology was such that building relatively small bore magnets to take animals was progressing very rapidly. When was the technology such that researchers felt that metabolic imaging in humans could be possible? It was only in the early 80s that it was possible to build a magnet of sufficient magnetic field strength to start to think about the possibility of doing metabolic imaging in in humans. The initial development of magnetic resonance imaging came from really looking at a signal that is derived from the hydrogen nucleus bound to water. So because biological systems have a very high concentration of water, around uh, 80% water, the concentration of protons is very high. It's about 80 molar. Now, NMR is a very weak phenomenon. It uh, is very difficult to detect this signal. But as the technology in the 70s and 80s began to develop, we realized that, in fact, we could produce very nice images at magnetic field strengths in in around the one Tesla range. What is a Tesla? A Tesla is 10,000 Gauss. The Earth's magnetic field is about half a Gauss. So these are very strong superconducting magnets. And were you able to detect the metabolic signals you were interested in with that magnetic field strength? Now, unfortunately, all the metabolic signals that we would like to look at, those from the other elements such as sodium, phosphorus, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen are even weaker signals than that obtained from protons. So in fact, we have to have a very large magnetic field to increase the sensitivity to detect these much weaker signals. In 1980s, uh, the magnetic field strength for clinical imaging using water was state-of-the-art imaging was regarded as being performed at 1.5 tesla. So in the early 90s, when the magnet technology, and I'm talking about now large bore magnets, the magnet technology was such that we could build a 3T human system. Built that system and demonstrated very nicely that not only was 
the standard clinical proton imaging improved, but in fact we had access now, uh, although still probably not on a scale that was feasible clinically, to perform really nice metabolic imaging, at least with sodium, which is the next most sensitive nucleus at a high enough concentration that we can do this in a reasonable amount of time in humans. So in the early and mid-1990s, we could do sodium imaging at a resolution of about 5 millimeters uh, isotropic resolution in less than 10 minutes. That was the first step towards metabolic imaging. How did the progression to the 9.4 Tesla proceed? Now, to really increase the sensitivity as far as we can, then it was a question of raising the magnetic field strength as high as we possibly could. Over the course of the next five to 10 years, the superconducting magnet technology improved such that we could now, by, I guess we started this project in the year 2000, we could actually build a magnet with a diameter of 80 centimeters at a field strength of 9.4 Tesla. Now you might ask the question, why 9.4 T and not 10 Tesla? And the answer to that is the superconducting wire technology that currently exists is such that the highest current density that you can obtain at 4 degrees Kelvin gives you a current that gives you 9.4 Tesla. So it actually represents a technological barrier with superconducting wire in the magnetic technology that is limited as to 9.4 Tesla. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and I'm speaking with Dr. Keith Tholborn, director of the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Dr. Tholborn, how did they create the 9.4 Tesla magnet? It entails winding approximately 500 kilometers of superconducting wire around the various formers to produce a cylindrical structure that makes up the superconducting magnet. Did the manufacturing capability necessary exist at the time to build the magnet? The precision at which this is done is extremely high. And in fact, to build this uh, particular magnet, a completely new winding machine had to be developed in order to perform the high-precision windings that are required. Uh, In fact, the whole process of uh, building the uh, magnet entailed quite a lot of improvements in the manufacturing process itself to actually to be able to obtain the precision required to get the performance specs that were required. Did they have to build this magnet inside a steel shield? How do, how do they work with this? So the first step is that you produce a stainless steel mold or a, a former. So this is a cylinder of stainless steel that is made with very high precision and then that's placed on a machine, and then the superconducting wire is wrapped around that former. Now, there are actually two formers. One goes inside the other. So after the wire is wound on both of the formers, the two formers are inserted concentrically inside one another. When you wind this much wire around such a large cylinder, and then you have to insert one inside the other with uh, literally less than a millimeter of precision in terms of the amount of movement, the amount of space between the two cylinders, then you have to do things very, very carefully. And the machinery that's used in the manufacturing process basically had to be invented to achieve this, this level of precision. Now, this magnet is 100,000 times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, it's actually uh, more than that. The Earth's magnetic field is about half a gauss. This is 94 thousand gauss, so this is uh, literally twice 94,000 times the Earth's magnetic field. Did it take a long time to install the machine at your facility? And can you talk about the accommodations that were made to ensure that the magnet would not be jarred by external vibrations? This was a wonderful uh, engineering project, because when you produce a magnet of this field strength, 
you have to remember that uh, it's a superconducting magnet, so it's maintained at 4 degrees Kelvin. So the solenoidal coils that we've just been describing are actually suspended from two points inside a vacuum container and then inside a container that contains the cryogens or the liquid helium to keep it at superconducting temperatures. Now, this becomes a very uh, fragile instrument, even though it weighs over 40 tons when it's fully loaded with cryogens. What would happen if the coils were jarred? The whole structure itself, if you like, is rather fragile. Any severe vibrations would have the solenoidal coils move. If they were going to move, then in fact you have certain risks of breaking the connections, but you have the other concern is that you would be changing the magnetic field produced by the magnet. Given that this is an incredibly sensitive magnetic resonance scanner, then in fact those changes would be clearly visible in the images. I see. So what did you do to protect the magnet? So in order to reduce the vibrations from the surrounding building, the magnet sits on a slab of concrete, its own slab, that's separated from the rest of the building. The slab itself is supported by six caissons that go down 60 feet into the Chicago uh, clay, uh, which actually serves as a very nice buffer for any vibrations coming from the surrounding environment. For example, subways and so forth that are some distance away from uh, UAC could still potentially produce vibrations through the ground that the uh, system would detect. We've been very fortunate that by taking all these precautions of separating the slab on which the magnet and the room sits and making sure that the caissons go down far enough that, in fact, we have no concerns now about having our images complicated by vibrations that we wouldn't be able to control. You yourself were the first subject to enter the machine. What was that experience like? It's always an exciting experience to do something that uh, no one else has done. When we did the first three, built the first 3T system, the concerns that I had there were whether uh, I would be dizzy, whether it would be very noisy, whether there would be stimulation of the retina or the uh, tongue to produce some of the effects that we know uh, happen in high magnetic fields. And what did you experience? It turned out the 3T uh, experience was very benign. The 9.4T experience is certainly a lot more profound. How is that? If you stand at the end of the magnet and you move your head around in the magnetic field, at the end of the magnet, you can certainly experience a sense of dizziness, a sense of flashing lights as the retina is stimulated. And some people, although I haven't, have not had this experience, some people experience a stimulation of a metallic taste in their mouth. Those effects are actually quite strong when you experience for the first time. But after you move through the magnetic field for uh, some time, in fact, the, the effects become as benign as they are at, at uh, clinical field strength. So this is something that the brain is uh, easily able to adapt to. So actually now, if I go into the magnet, and we always control the rate at which subjects move into the magnet, in fact, it's a completely benign experience. So this is something that the brain can adapt to very easily. From the picture that I saw of the machine, it looks tubular. I'm wondering, how do you have subjects do behavioral tasks while they're inside of the machine? Well, in fact, the, the bore size where the patient lies is actually larger than any of the clinical machines. It's, remember I said it was an 80-centimeter bore magnet? Well, the clinical systems that are currently on the market have bore sizes of only 60 centimeters. So the patient actually has, or the subject, has more than enough space to move their hands and, and their legs. If you're going to now do a sort of cognitive task in the magnet, such as you would do with functional imaging, then in fact there's a mirror inside the coil where the patient's head sits that allows them to look outside of the coil and outside of the magnet. 
So in fact, that mirror is the same sort of system that is used on clinical systems today, either for patient comfort purposes or for functional imaging. The machine itself and the process of creating it and making it is amazing, but the really significant part of the story is what will be learned by using the machine. Briefly, using this enormous magnet will allow you to see is the firing of neurons rather than just the delayed action of water molecules in the brain. Yes, that's correct. Basically, what we're going to be looking at is the metabolic processes that support brain function, that is neuronal firing. It is metabolic imaging that makes imaging at these ultra-high field strengths different from the standard clinical imaging that's done today. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Keith Tholborn, Director of the Center for Magnetic Resonance Research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you, Dr. Tholborn. Thank you very much.